What would you say if I told you every baked good skill starts with a muffin? In searching for some information for my muffin cookbook, I discovered something I didn't know. From muffins, we can take one step and make biscuits or cakes or pancakes. Take another step and we can make crepes or spatzel. Today's episode is about that second degree of separation from muffins and some follow-up on the dietary guidelines, insulin, and the great food transformation. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 132. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. You know what spring needs? Red beans and sausage. Make your own batch from page 90 of my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort. Easy one-pot meals you can make and will want to eat. Find it on Amazon or check out the blog page for my book, culinarylibertarian.com slash cooking for comfort. To get the most out of your cooking and baking, you need good fat. Get fat with my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash get fat. Choose from lard or tallow or duck or goose fat and make and bake better meals. I have mentioned on several occasions there is a specific procedure for mixing muffins. Wet ingredients are in one bowl, the dry ingredients are in another bowl, and the dry goes on top of the wet. Fold quickly, but briefly, pan and bake and cool, and eat. Simple. I've wondered for a while how this came to be, this exact specific procedure. Only recently did I start really to look into this question. So, to Fanny Farmer I went and learned what she had published years ago about muffins. Well, I sure was not ready for what I found. There is the ancestor to our modern muffin, but there is a creamed muffin. That means the butter is creamed, then the procedure is like mixing a cake. Add the sugar, cream some more, and the egg, then alternatively add the flour and the milk. And there is at least one muffin without egg. The procedure resembles a biscuit procedure, but with more liquid. The chief distinction between cake and creamed muffin is less sugar. Nobody cares what your minor was in college. Frankly, most people don't care what your major was. But my minor was history, and the history of the muffin has documented by a source as reliable as Fanny Farmer has caused me to accept new ideas about my muffin thinking and muffin making. And that new idea has led me to this new idea. From those various muffin mixing methods, 
the skills obtained in making them, come all baked goods that we make today. That's to say that we can trace everything back to those three basic skills. The biscuit-style muffin is a muffin instead of a biscuit by a change in ratios. More milk than less. The creaming-style muffin is a muffin and not a cake by a change in ratios. Muffin has less sugar than the cake. The modern muffin is a muffin and not a crepe by a change in ratios. So it goes with so many things. And today, that change of ratios in muffin ingredients will give us crepes or spetzel or spetzli. Oh, and crepes can be turned into a tempura batter by a change of ratios. Remember that Kevin Bacon game? Any actor was not more than six steps away from Kevin Bacon. Well, so it is with muffins. When the book, the second edition of Foolproof Muffins, is ready, I'll have more to say about that. The premise is, as I'm saying here, that cakes and breads and even crepes are just steps away from a muffin. Crepes and spatzel are two of my favorite items to make and both start with the same procedure. Crepes have more liquid than spatzel, but the start is the same, and the start originates from what I'll call the modern, as in today's mixing method, the modern muffin method. As a reminder, that's the liquid apart from the dry, then mixed together. Recall that for the muffin, the eggs and milk, or buttermilk, and butter and sugar are added to one bowl. The flour and salt and leaveners are added to the other bowl, and then the two are folded together. The steps away part here in this mixing method for the crepes or the spatzel or this kind of a batter uh, we're going to alter the order of ingredients and the ratio of them to make this batter. The difference between crepes and spatzel is the consistency of the batter. I mentioned we can make a tempura style batter, but it can mostly be any batter. Something for fish, for fish and chips, or for zucchini fingers, or for onion rings. The amount of liquid, and for the batter, it might be beer changes the consistency and therefore the function. So, let's start. As with many recipes, there are some differences. Some recipes for crepes may call for sugar, some may not. The use may dictate when to use sugar, but even for a dessert, a savory crepe is fine. And finally, we don't need to eat more sugar, so I have no problem omitting sugar, uh, even the small portion, from a crepe batter. Our ingredients are eggs, flour, milk, melted butter, which may be slightly browned for flavor, salt, sugar, if we're using it, uh, flavorings such as orange or lemon or almond, or possibly even vanilla, uh, if you're making a dessert. 
You may read recipes which call for sifted flour. It isn't necessary if you follow the procedure I offer, but it isn't a bad practice to get into always sifting the flour. In part, it is to eliminate lumps. In part, it is to aerate the flour for better incorporation into the batter. And in part, it is to find out if weevils have hatched in your flour. Yeah, that's gross. But the weevil eggs were probably in the bag of flour when you bought it. And in case you were wondering how they got into the pasta in a still sealed box, the eggs were in the flour when the pasta was made and they hatched when the pasta was in the box. Yeah, it's still gross. Melt and allow to brown slightly one tablespoon of whole butter. I always prefer unsalted butter. While that's on low heat, crack five eggs into a bowl large enough to whisk the eggs and the following ingredients. Sift eight ounces of all-purpose flour and a teaspoon of salt. I am a fan of a grated whole, well, grated nutmeg, grated whole nutmeg, so grate your own, not the, don't buy the pre-grated stuff, that's silly, uh, in the crepes and pretty much anything, any batter at all. Uh, so add the ground, freshly grated nutmeg into the flour and measure a pint of whole milk. This is a big crepe recipe. If you want to do the math and figure out how to break down eight ounces uh, by fifths, that's fine. Uh, there's no reason you can't make all these crepes and then freeze them, refrigerate them, or just invite friends over. The procedure for all three kinds of batters, either the crepe, the spatzel, or the, you know, the onion ring batter, is add the flour mixture to the eggs. Now, before we do that, we're going to follow some steps here. Whisk all of the eggs together very, very well to break them up. You want a homogeneous mixture of the eggs. Then to that, we're going to add some flour. What we're looking to do is make a very stiff concoction, a stiff paste from the flour and the eggs. And that stiff paste will happen before you add all the flour. That's okay. What we're looking for here is the eggs to bind with the flour, well, really the flour to absorb the moisture from the eggs and make this make make the beginning of our of our batter, whatever we're doing here. So we're doing crepes. Once we get this stiff batter, I'm going to add a little bit of milk to loosen the batter up. We don't want it too loose yet because we, what we're counting on this is this is a technique that. Why, if you're not going to sift the flour, this is why it's not necessary. Because when you're making this really stiff paste of the flour and the eggs, if there's lumps in the flour, the stiffness of that paste being whisked and mixed is going to undo any of the lumps that would be in a flour. That same technique of whisking the eggs and a thing works for making French toast batter. So what I would do is in that case, um, start with an egg and your sugar and your cinnamon and cardamom and anything else dry that you're putting into it. 
whisk all those things with the egg and the sugar and all that stuff together to make a nice thick paste of all homogenized stuff. Then add your other egg, whatever else you're adding, and then add your milk. And you'll find that the cinnamon in your French toast juice liquid custard is what it is, is much more thoroughly mixed than if you make the eggs and sugar and milk first and then put the cinnamon on top. It just floats on top and the person who got the very first piece of French toast gets all the cinnamon and everybody else gets nothing. So this is a way to make sure everybody gets some and it's also a smooth, nice, even distribution of all the flavors. So let's go back to our crepes. We have this flour and egg paste. We've added some milk to it to loosen it up so we can add more flour to it. And we're going to keep doing this change off until all the flour is incorporated and they make sure it's really, really whisked together well so the lumps are in fact worked out. Then add your milk into this. Now, because this paste has some bulk to it, if you whisk rapidly with the milk added, you're going to wear it. So be careful. Keep the food in the bowl, not on you. Once all the milk is incorporated into your crepe batter, this is the last major change from our procedure, is I'm going to add the cooled browned butter to the batter now. Now, there isn't really any rule about when to add that. You can add that cool. Now, it's going to be cool. If it's too hot, it's going to cook the eggs, and then that's a problem that we can't undo. Uh, you can add the butter in with the eggs as you're building the paste. There's nothing wrong with that. There's, it's six one, half dozen the other. I don't, I don't think there's a big difference either way. The important part is don't forget the butter because that nutty flavor really adds a nice contribution. And you also want the fat in there as a texture thing and also as a release thing when we're cooking our crepes. So let's make sure we just covered the bases here. We're taking our eggs, whisking them to be thoroughly homogenous, adding flour, say a quarter of our eight ounces, just you know, eyeball a quarter of that, building our paste. And as soon as the paste gets really stiff, a little bit of milk to soften up the, the paste, add more flour and repeat until all of the flour is incorporated, add the rest of the milk, now your crepe batter, and you've got the butter in there, your crepe batter is done. Now the crepe batter needs to rest at least half an hour. Now you may have found some YouTube video where they make the crepe batter and cook it right away, and that's fine, especially for a video. Um, you'll, in, in fact, I'm going to link to a video of Jacques Pepin, who, uh, who does, in fact, that very thing. He mixes a batter, talks about how when his daughter was a kid, then they would come home from school and make crepes. And, you know, it's a very romantic, fun story. So he's making the crepe batter then and there with one egg instead of five. You can adjust it. You can use his recipe. But as he's making the crepes, he comments, this batter is getting thicker. Well, that's what's going to happen. So as your batter sits for half an hour in the refrigerator, it's going to get thicker than you necessarily want it to be. Well, Mr. Smarty Pants Reed, how do I know how thin I want it to be? Excellent question. Crepe batter needs to be pretty darn thin, and that's one of the reasons I'm going to link the video is so that you can see 
what it is that he's doing in the pan, as you know, it's Jacques Pepin, uh, it's really pretty thin. The batter is easily pourable, and that's what we want to have. Uh, when your batter comes out of the fridge and it's going to be thicker, you'll need to add milk to it. Now, don't you know, a tablespoon or two to loosen it up, but as you start doing this, you'll get practice and you'll see what's necessary. Uh, if you are so inclined, you can make this on Saturday night for Sunday. You can make the batter on Friday, cook them on Saturday, and have brunch on Sunday, But because these things can hold. You can make the batter a day or two ahead, make the crepes a day ahead, and then fill them and do your brunch thing on Sunday, and that's perfectly reasonable. It's, it's a lot to do, otherwise do it all in one day. Cooking crepes was a task nearly all cooks preferred to avoid. I like it. It's a test of patience and skill and deftness. At home, I see no reasonable reason to make this difficult. If you have one of those crepe-making griddle devices, use it. If you have a decent Teflon pan, that will do. If you have a well-seasoned cast-iron pan, that will work. We are actively avoiding that pan which is not seasoned, and is not coated with a nonstick surface. That is asking for a headache. There is no right pan size. The crepe police won't show up if you make a 6-inch crepe or a 12-inch crepe. The pan you have that is seasoned or is nonstick is exactly the right pan for you. Now, I wanted to take a moment to address some alternatives, and we'll get back to this part. Not all recipes are exactly the same. Not all procedures are exactly the same. I've seen crepe batter made in a blender. I don't do that. My procedure works well for me, and I really hate cleaning the blender. Regardless the recipe you use or the procedure you use, there is at least this rather consistent issue about crepes. The batter needs to rest, which I've mentioned, to hydrate, and the final batter needs to be thin, which I've mentioned, but this is a really important part of crepe making. The test for proper consistency is how does the crepe batter respond in the pan. In nearly every crepe making cook I've ever had, Every pan offered up one crepe to the crepe gods. Using a quarter of a cup measure, pour some of the batter into your warm pan. Great, you did it again. What is a warm pan? So here we are with more non-specific descriptions and instructions. I use heat number four on my little push-button digital stovetop. That's just below medium, and that works well for me. Brush a small portion of butter in the pan, even if it's nonstick. Pour a little crepe batter into the pan. Uh, pouring crepe batter into the pan is a two-handed job. One hand pours the batter, and the other hand holds the pan at a slight angle and pivots the pan so the batter flows to cover the entire bottom. Now, I know this is sounding like a giant mess. 
so the link to Jacques' video will very easily show you what it is that I'm saying about pouring in the, the batter to coat the bottom of the pan. If if your portion of batter doesn't cover the bottom of the pan sufficiently, then use just pour some more in the empty spots. It's not that big of a deal. It's because it's not going to matter. The crepe is so thin. It will be perfectly fine, and the crepe guys will be very pleased that you didn't leave a holy crepe for service. When Jacques goes to turn them, he uses a little fork right at the edge of the crepe, and as the crepe cooks, it may take, you know, he says it takes a minute. On his stove, it took a minute. It may take 40 seconds or 90 seconds on your stove. What you're looking to have happen, and the, and the determinant of doneness is the edges start to release a little bit from the side of the pan. And you, we used our fingers. You can use a wooden spoon, a fork, a heat-proof rubber spatula, something to get the ed, to lift the crepe up, to turn it over so that the other side cooks for about 30 seconds. Again, with that time thing, what we're looking to have happen when you turn the crepe over you want to see a nice golden brown or maybe even a little bit more than golden brown because that, remember, that caramel is flavor. That's what makes it taste good. But you want some cook on the other side of that crepe, but because it's just the surface, it doesn't need a lot of time. So some few seconds to get a little bit of a color on there and your crepe is done. Now he makes a point, and it's an important um, it's an important one for service, that the now upside of the crepe is actually the service side. So when you go to take the crepe out and place it on the either the sheet pan or on the plate like he does, turn the crepe over so the original bottom is now down. So when you go to fill the crepe. When you fold it up, you see the pretty first side, and that's always going to be the service side. Is this a taste thing? Not at all. This is a pretty thing. If you're going to cover it all with sauce or powdered sugar, again, the crepe police won't show up, but these are levels of distinctions between <laughs> chefs for this is, this is service. So this is, make of it what you will. All right. So I just want to make sure we go over this one more time because if you've not made them, this is all new, and new is sometimes flummoxing. The batter's made, the batter's rested, and we're ready to cook. Our pan is hot, buttered, we're ready to go. Maybe. We want to make sure that we do have either a small sheet pan, a small plate, um, butcher, butcher's paper would work, baking paper would work, silicone baking mats would work, something some place and something on which to put these finished crepes. So in the in the video I'm going to link to, Jacques shows the classic uh, folding of the crepe for, say, the table-side service of crepes Suzette, which uh, that folding is you fold the crepe in half. So now you have a half moon, and you fold it again in half to make what looks like a quarter of a pie. Now that is the traditional folding where if you're doing table side, the whole crepe is in the sauce, gets folded up in the pan, put on the plate, and the maitre d' then uh, serves the crepes onto the plate, pours the rest of the sauce onto the crepes, and you know, powdered sugar, whipped cream, whatever's got, a little bit of 
maybe, maybe a flambe. It's kind of fun. It's dangerous, but fun. Uh, and then the other service would be that you take the crepe, put the filling inside, and then roll it up like, yeah, like that Seinfeld episode where the Cuban cigar rollers are made of doing crepes. Rolled crepes are, I don't think there's an actual rule for this. Generally, they're going to be savory, but not always. Crepes can be filled with anything you can conceive. There are some things that are easier to fit in crepes, and that's going to be something that has a thick consistency and generally creamy because it tastes good. So think like a chicken pot pie filling in crepes. Well, that sounds kind of yum, doesn't it? Creamy isn't a requirement. Uh, think maybe about putting chili. Not, not creamy at all, but chili in a crepe sounds interesting. Now, let's go back to our mixing for a minute and think about how we can go from a standard crepe, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. How do we go to dazzling? Well, for a savory crepe that has maybe crayfish tails or uh, crayfish tails in a cream sauce or crayfish tails in a crayfish bisque or something creamy and shrimp, putting some chopped dill and some snipped chives into the batter would both be pretty and taste good. Um, let's go back to that chili idea. Put some, depends on what your flavor profiles are, put some cumin into the crepe batter. Put some cayenne pepper into the crepe batter. Put something consistent with the flavors you're trying to create into your crepe batter so it is compatible to the filling. This is as wide open as you want it to be. All right, let's talk next about spatzel. But before I do that, let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. All right, so we're going to make spatzel, which is fundamentally the same starting procedure as the crepes. The big difference here is the batter will be much stiffer than it was for the crepes because we're not pouring this into a pan. It needs to be thick enough to... Well, there's a couple of ways to get spatzel into the water. Spatzel is a, it's actually technically a dumpling. Uh, it could be considered a kind of a pasta, but is always boiled first. And I'm, and there's a, so th there's a video I'm going to link to. It's about a minute and a half long uh of a woman who's doesn't speak a word of english or at least not in the video but it's not important you don't need to hear the you don't need to hear the words you need to watch this woman she is amazing there's a method to making spatzel by putting it on a wooden cutting board uh so you make the wooden cutting board pretty wet so that the batzel, the spatzel batter will come off, and with the back of a serrated knife or a 
uh, pastry blade or a putting knife. Um, there's there's a way to yeah putting knife. I know they're in the kitchen. Don't tell anybody. Um, there's a way to get this done. But she has such an amazing skill and deftness at pushing little teeny ribbons of spatza batter off of her wooden board into the boiling water. It's just a delight to watch because it's so impressive. Normally, spatzel batter would be pushed through the holes of a metal colander. Sometimes it'd be pushed through the back of a single-sided cheese grater. Uh, I have a box grater, so that's really not very useful. Um, I've done it in nylon colanders, and it works. It's a little sloppy and a little messy, but it can be done. There's a lot of ways to get this accomplished, but the thing we're accomplishing is we're taking a rather stiff batter and making small pieces of it, and then boiling it in water, and then we're going to finish it in a particular way, which I'll get to in a minute. So let's get to the mixing of the spatzel, and we'll talk a little bit about the cooking part. As with the crepes, I like nutmeg here, but I also like in spatzel brown butter and probably more browned here than for the crepes because of the finished application. And I also really like uh, flavors of sage and rosemary in the spatzel batter. Now, depending on your final service use, those things might change, but I think they taste good. The same idea applies. We take a quantity of eggs. We can use the same. We'll use less eggs because we're making a stiffer dough. Uh, three eggs, eight ounces of flour. And, and now I can't tell you how much milk because I don't know how much liquid's in your eggs. But we're going to do the same idea. We're going to whisk the eggs nice and smooth. Add some flour. Make a thick paste. Add a little bit of milk. Add some more flour, add a little bit of milk, and we want to avoid making thin batter. Um, the, the video of the German lady with the cutting board, you'll see that this stuff looks almost like a bread dough almost. That's, that's good. We want a thick, stiff batter, and it's going to be really stiff and stuck on to your whisk. That's okay. If it drips off your whisk a little bit, that's, that, there's degrees here. That's fine. What we want to do is make sure when we get ready, and so this batter can cook right away. Whereas with the crepe batter, we would let it rest for half an hour. With the spatzel batter, we can make it, uh, season it with salt and pepper, of course, and then go right into uh, our pot of boiling salted water. Now, we have a few things going on here. We're going to be putting our hands over steaming boiling water. So we don't want to miss and then put our hands in boiling water because that doesn't feel good. The next thing we're going to do while the spats are cooking, and they cook really quickly, but within seconds, you'll know they're done when they float. Something has to happen to them. In the restaurant, we made a lot. And so the spats would come out of the water, go into an ice bath to stop the cooking, come out of the ice bath, get coated in a little bit of liquid oil, probably olive oil, and then stored in the refrigerator. And then on service, a portion was heated in a pan of browned butter, then finished with salt and pepper, some parsley, some chives maybe for pretty, and then it went on the plate. Well, we could omit all of that service step stuff 
and go right from boiling our spatzel, lifting it out with either a um, with the chen. There's a, if you do a lot of wok cooking, you have a thing called the spider, but anything that will lift the spatzel out of the water and leave the water behind to then move your cooked spatzel into the pan of hot butter. Now, second thing, we have a pan of hot butter and we have wet stuff. So hot butter and wet stuff, they're not friendly. They're going to spit and they're going to steam and they're going to splatter grease in lots of places. If you have a gas top stove, well, I'm not, I, I doubt anything major is going to happen, but I would not be surprised to see a little bit of flare-up on the side. This is not intended to scare you into not doing it. This is to say, hey, pay attention. We, we have something happening here. So attention to detail and focus is the name of the game here. Um, nothing bad will happen. We've been this at restaurants for years and years and years, and everybody's just fine. Just know hot butter and wet stuff in a pan is is going to they're going to respond to each other in predictable and known ways. And that predictable known way is the water's gonna spit and the butter's gonna get mad and everything's fine. In five, ten seconds, everybody's happy, nobody else is spinning. Now what we're doing is we're toasting these cooked spatzel in this brown butter to develop some color. Color is is caramel. We want that flavor. Not everybody does. And there's I'm not saying you need to. You can just decide and test for yourself what you like. I like a little bit of a toothsomeness to the outside of my spatzel so the inside still has that tenderness. But it also is a contrast, usually in texture, against, say, a nice beef stew would be a good accompaniment for spatzel, roasted venison, or venison stew. Oh, man, that sounds good. Uh, getting some contrast and compatibility at the same time really is just makes for a fun dinner. But get them nice and toasty, a little salt and pepper at the end green because it looks pretty, some chopped parsley, and we're good to go. I know it was fast, so let's just recap one more time. Spatzel batter is made similar to the crepe batter, but not as thin. It goes, so make sure it's seasoned, and the brown butter goes in at the end, in this case, because we're waiting for it to cool, and it's going to adjust the consistency just a little teeny, teeny, teeny bit. We're going to cook right away by either doing the old grandma version of pushing little ribbons off of our wooden cutting board or through the back of a cheese grater or through a metal strainer into boiling water. It's going to make little funky shapes. They're going to cook rapidly and they're going to be done soon. So you're going to lift them out carefully and carry them right next to the, the next to you. That burner is your pan of Nicely brown butter, waiting for the spatzel to come in. Put them in, and psst, they're going to spit, and that's okay. They're going to become friends soon. And you're going to cook them to your preference. And your preference is what you like or what Oma told you you prefer. Put them on a plate, put the stuff on top, and you're good to go. All right. 
I'm going to talk a couple of minutes about some uh, ideas from a couple of previous episodes. On episode 128, I really went after the dietary guidelines for Americans. My key point of discussion was how the plan endorses high grain and high carb consumption, which has, in some significant part, led to an epidemic of unwell and unhealthy Americans. Heart disease and diabetes are among the most serious issues. The tone of that episode was heavy because the issue is serious. A lot of people are not well and maybe don't know it. Some do. I've talked to some keto folks and to former guest Kyle Mamonis, the biochemist who was on for the fat and sugar episode, and what I've learned is eating anything drives insulin secretion. Eat food and insulin rises. That's as it should be. Insulin has a job to do. There are at least two problems for some folks. They eat more calories than they burn, and they eat so often, the insulin levels never get a chance to come back down. People exclude particular foods for a variety of reasons. Some are the keto folks. They exclude virtually all starchy carbs and have a restricted plant-based carb, so broccoli, cauliflower, um, there's there's a there's a list and they're serious about their list and that's fine. There are vegans and vegetarians and high carb low fat and low carb high fat, uh, which aren't necessarily the keto folks and the raw folks and probably more. Any macronutrient in excess, remember a macronutrient is a carb, a fat, or a protein, can make you fat if you don't consume the stored energy. That's a fancy way of saying if you overeat, which for this discussion means consume more calories than you burn, you and I will get fat. As I mentioned in episode 128, that doesn't happen tomorrow or next week. You might see a change in your waistline, but the internal issues are also a concern. I'm going to link to an article on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 132, which does a decent job of explaining these points and more. I will say I am not sure I accept his premise that plant-based protein is superior, but I do think he makes a good and valid case about the eating of carbs and fat. Think cheeseburgers on a toasted bun with french fries. This leads to the next issue, plant-based proteins and the great food transformation, which you may remember is part of the Great Reset. Now, I've done an episode on the Great Reset and also on the Great Food Transformation, which is episode 122. As you surf the web and find articles mentioning the looming 10 billion people on the planet by 2050, or the UN's Sustainable Development Goals, know that those are phrases from the Great Reset, and that's also the World Economic Forum language for the massive global central planner putting plans in place. Let me ask you this. How does someone driving a desk 
from anywhere in the world know how to improve sustainability for everywhere in the world. Seems preposterous to ask, doesn't it? The article, Future Proofing Our Food for a Healthier and Sustainable World, discusses the need to increase food trust. They note that farmers are trusted most and retailers behind that. The article notes that governments are well behind in consumer trust. To answer their own question of what can governments do to earn trust, they offer this, quote, Consumers want authorities with more visibility, transparency, and backbone that lead with humanity and leadership rather than the interest-driven perceptions commonly attributed to them. Governments will garner more trust by demonstrating their independence and by imposing harsher sanctions on rule-breakers. A proactive stance and action that pushes change across the food chain for the common good are required. To support this, governments need to offer or endorse consumer symbols to speed up decision-making and help people make healthy food choices, end quote. Do I sound cynical if that sounds like you will trust us or else? What is intended in the great food transformation is a focus on plant-based proteins to fight the windmill of the day, climate change. Another article from foodnavigator.com entitled, Does a Plant-Based Diet Lead to Poorer Bone Health? refers to a German study between vegans and omnivores to check for bone density. The paper writes that there appears to be a correlation between vegan diets, insufficient proper nutrients, and poor bone density. I'll put a link to the article on the show notes page. Central planners cannot possibly know the preferences for all. I would not trust my state representative to know better than me what I want to eat, so why would someone in Washington, D.C. or from the World Economic Forum know better than me what I want to eat? The best way to counteract the World Economic Forum Great Reset and Great Food Transformation is to grow your own food. Make friends with the people in your community, in your county, in your neighborhood who grow different food, particularly farmers and cattlemen and chicken and egg farmers. If climate change is important to you, stop buying food that has traveled better this year than you have. Buy local foods as much as possible, and with summer not far away, that's going to be easy to do. It's also going to be easy to grow local foods. Then, learn to can and preserve your bounty. The key takeaway from this podcast is no one is going to attend to your wants better than you. All right, folks, that's going to do it. The Jacques Pepin video and the Spatzel Lady video links will be on the show notes page as well as the article I mentioned about bone density. Now that spring has sprung and the grass has riz, I wonder where the entrepreneurs is. Pardon me.
Get your kids ready for life as entrepreneurs with kits from Boss Club, the entrepreneur kit club for kids. They can make cake pops, dog treats, homemade soap or bath bombs, or fudge. Kits are suitable for kids from 7 to 14 years old, and with their cash flow, they can learn people skills, confidence, and creativity, and what it means to earn an income. Use my affiliate link, colonialibertarian.com slash kidbiz, that's colonialibertarian.com slash K-I-D-B-I-Z, to learn how to start your kids on their entrepreneurial path. Surf over to colonialibertarian.com slash kidbiz or click the banner on the show notes page. Please share this episode on your social media feeds and like it when you see it. Also, please rate and review the episode on your favorite podcatchers and subscribe to the show on those very same podcatchers to get every episode delivered to you. If you like the show, I would appreciate your financial support. Surf over to culinarylibertarian.com slash support for fiat currency options. Thank you very much. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.